Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We're live from the quarantine, although soon, hopefully soon, coming to a close, reopening. But we have been doing this Philippian study during uh, the month of April and now into May in the hopes that maybe we're adding something to the quiet time routine, either in the morning or in the evening. Um, For those of you guys that have listened to the podcast, you know that one of the things that we believe is you're never going to change your worldview. You're never going to change the way you think about things to being a Christian way of thinking about things unless you're regularly reading your Bible. So uh, I've really enjoyed your series that you've been doing, and I think a lot of people have too through the book of Philippians. Well, it was a great idea that you had to do it, and the time is right. I think we all have a little more time on our hands, maybe looking for a little more content. I have to say it's been both challenging to put uh, any kind of thought into three minutes, mm-hmm. but I've actually started to enjoy it. Uh, it kind of gets back to basic exegesis. You read a short passage, and you make an observation or several, and then the so what? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does that mean to me? And I think that's a good way to approach it. Yeah, I think it's been great. I think it's just a a great way to do your quiet time every day. Um, You know, we've also had a lot of good interaction over the time. I think people are spending a little bit more time on social media. (laughs) Everybody's screen time is up on a weekly basis. But uh, we've gotten a lot of good feedback and people reaching out, asking questions, looking for resources. And, And one message in particular gave us a great suggestion to get back to doing our Bible overviews. Yes. And that's something that we knew we needed to be doing, and I really appreciate. Did we say we'd do every book of the Bible? Yeah. (laughs) At this point, we're on the decade plan (laughs) to get through all the books of the Bible. But we're going to be doing the book of Acts today. This is one that is is probably deserving of multiple podcast episodes, but we're going to try and do an overview of Acts, as we've done with several other books, just to give you a sense of what you're getting into when you start reading the book of Acts, things to look for, maybe some difficult spaces, maybe some reasons that people get bogged down in Acts. Mm -hmm. And then, too, some encouragement as to why to read it and why it matters. And my two thoughts on Acts, just to kick us off in our discussion, is it might be the most exciting book in the Bible. If you think about the amount of things that happen. Action-packed. It is action-packed. Acts is a long book. And I think the second thing I would say about it is Acts is the book where sermon series go to die. <laughs> I've been a part of churches who've preached through Acts, and multiple times they've gotten to the trial scenes at the end and decided, uh-huh. you know what, we're just going to do 22 through 27 all in all one together. sermon because we are so tired of being in the book of Acts. And if you get on, it's, it's funny, if you get on and look at the way that churches preach through the book of Acts, it starts out they'll do... You know, seven sermons in the first two chapters yes. or something. Right. And in the last 14 chapters, they'll do four sermons. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, it is really long mm-hmm. and it is really exciting. It's really action packed, lots of narrative. We'll talk about some of the distinct features of Acts as a genre. It's really kind of its own genre. Right. But the place we always want to start is what is Acts? And Unlike some books in the New Testament, it gives us a pretty good sense of what to expect from the very beginning. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You jump in and you realize immediately we are in the middle of something. 
I might have missed something before this because this is actually part two. This is the sequel of the best-selling book, Luke. Luke. That's right. <laughs> Acts is the second half of Luke's gospel. It's a two-part series. And Luke is also a central character in the book of Acts. And later in the letters of Paul, you get a little bit better view of what's going on. But we're going to get some real-life experience, eyewitness accounts in the book of Acts. And so it probably is a great thing to do to start out and talk a little bit about Luke. Yeah. Luke is an interesting character uh, in that he is not Jewish in his thinking, in his ethnicity, and so he's a departure, if you will. Uh, let's see what a couple things we know about Luke. Colossians chapter 4 tells us that he was a physician, and that meant, in those days, it meant about the same thing it means today, and that is, relatively speaking, you were an educated person. You uh, had studied, you could read, you were very literate, you could read, you could write, you could read good Greek not just common Greek. You know, you weren't reading comic books, you were reading med school textbooks. The other thing is that Luke doesn't tell you much about himself. And I love that because all in all of this writing, Luke realizes this is not about Luke. Now, you and I would love to know more about Luke, mm-hmm. but Luke realized this isn't about me. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about Luke is he's not with Paul the whole time. You know, Acts starts out, third-person narrative. You know, they did this, they went there, they did this. And he's acting as a historian, Mm -hmm. if you will. But then it changes to, we went here, we did this, you know. And Mm -hmm. so he joins Paul, he becomes a convert to Christianity. Well, he brings a really interesting, and I'm, I'm convinced that God's purpose was in this, he brings more of a 21st century Western, if you will, approach to this. Acts reads more like what we're used to reading as a history. Mm -hmm. Luke thinks more like what we're used to thinking with our Greco-Roman heritage Mm -hmm. of thinking. And so Luke is a modern man in a lot of regards. Mm -hmm. And Acts reads like a, quote, modern history. It does. And even scholars who are looking at Luke and Acts that are not necessarily interested in what they're doing in the Bible, they're more interested as Luke and Acts as a historical source. We'll point out that Luke is inventing a new genre of writing. It's not exactly the same as what you'll read in Greek histories. It's a little bit different. Right. Uh, but it's also not exactly the same as the other Gospels. So we've gone over this in the podcast we've done on the other Gospels, but it's likely that Luke has written after Mark. In fact, I would think it's it's there's a, a huge, right. huge chance that it's written after Mark. And that Luke has access to Mark. And the reason that we think that is because he quotes in Luke passages that you see in Mark. And sometimes they have better grammar. And sometimes they're in different places. But they're almost verbatim from the way that Mark tells the story in his gospel. Right. This is not surprising in the ancient world. And Luke actually tells us at the beginning of Luke that he's going to do that. In the beginning of Luke, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So he's saying, look, there were people that had seen this, and they have written some accounts. And ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed 
uh, all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is not trying to reinvent the wheel here. He's not trying to correct Mark or possibly Matthew. Right. But what he is doing is saying, okay, I'm going to collect an orderly account of the things that have happened using eyewitness sources, doing interviews. I'm going to get to the bottom of this and put together a reliable source so that you can be sure about what you've been taught concerning Jesus and then in Acts concerning Peter and Paul in the beginning of the church. In a sense, this might make a little sense to modern readers, he's sort of the Lee Strobel of, of the Gospels, of the Bible. He wasn't a Christian, he becomes a Christian, and he says, look, I'm going to investigate this and write an orderly account. And he does it with his training and his Greek background. And so there's a sense in which he comes at this very differently than anyone else, and uniquely so. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is we typically think about Paul writing the majority of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And if you just take the books numerically, he does write almost half the New Testament. When it comes to content, Luke is actually far and away the most prolific author in the New Testament. His gospel and the book of Acts comprise a large percent, about a quarter to a third of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the book of Acts, we get the history, the earliest history of the church. And scholars go back and forth on when this book should be dated. I'm not convinced that it actually matters when the book of Acts is dated, as long as it's sometime in the lifetime of Luke, sometime realistically in the time that Luke could live. But you typically see two approaches to this. Either people talk about it being dated before about 64, 65, and the Mm -hmm. reason that they do that is because there are some good reasons to think that maybe this was written before Paul died. Right. And we'll talk about that later. The second approach would be to say it's after the destruction of the temple. It's probably somewhere between 70 and 80. And it is written looking back on the first few decades of the church. And that's a reasonable view as well because uh, it takes a little bit of time to gather up all the testimony. Maybe Luke was written early and Acts was written 10 years later or 15 years later. Luke has obviously done a lot of source finding, interviewing, talking to people. He's done a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a preference on when the date is. Do you? I do, but not because I have any great data. I just think the ending of the book of Acts is persuasive to me that it was written before Paul's death, likely 68 AD. Yeah, I could definitely go with that. I think that makes, that makes a good explanation for what the end of the book of Acts is right. like. But that's not conclusive, but I'm persuaded that that's likely. The theme of Acts is in chapter 1, verse 8. Most scholars agree on this. Most uh, commentators agree that this sentence here in chapter 8, really this paragraph, comprises the theme not just in terms of what the book of Acts is going to do, but the sequence of events that are going to unfold in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So these are the words that uh, Jesus is speaking to to the disciples before the ascension. And the book of Acts opens with the ascension of Christ and quickly moves to the activity of the disciples in Jerusalem and in, in the area surrounding Jerusalem. 
you know, this is a really interesting piece of Christian history because Jesus dies, he rises from the dead and appears, and then you wonder, why not just keep it like that? Right. Why why doesn't Jesus just keep appearing and he swoops in when there's trouble or when people are doubting or when the apostles really need him? Uh-huh. He shows up, keep the training wheels on for a while. Kind of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi figure yes. that just sort of shows up from the dead when he needs When he's needed. needed. Why not do that? But instead what he does is he gathers his disciples to him. He ascends. And then you have to think that they're standing there looking at each other like, well, what do we do now? Right. It's the opening of the book of Acts is, is thematic, just as the end of the book of Acts is, in the sense that it's up to us. The disciples were saying that when Jesus ascended. They're saying, well, if the mission is going to be accomplished, it's going to be us who, gets it, who get it done. Mm-hmm. So the first thing they do is they decide to find another disciple. Because 12 is a very significant number. Right. And they need to have 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel. But they lost one of the disciples. Judas is no longer a disciple. His contract was not renewed for the second (laughs) season. And they decide to get Matthias. It's really the last we hear about Matthias. But they are back whole again as disciples. And they're going to start spreading the news of what Christ has done, preaching the gospel. And the first five chapters really talk about what that was like in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. The first five chapters are devoted to the Jews. But that in of itself is part of the first theme of the book of Acts, right. which is, like it says in, in 1.8, the gospel is going to extend across the entire earth. How does that happen at the beginning of the book? Yeah, that's great. I mean, in chapter 2, you get that great... Uh, I mean, the promise that power is going to come upon you, and it does on the day of Pentecost. And the fact that the sign that's given, I mean, there could have been a lot of things that the Holy Spirit could have manifested himself in, in this charismatic gifts, these supernatural gifts. Instead, it was language, tongues. And Everybody, they go to great lengths in chapter 2 to list out Jews from all over the world. And they list out all these places all around the world, literally, that Jews are there. And you get this miraculous event that fundamentally is a unifying event. It's, I'm going to speak and you're all going to hear it. In one sense, it undoes the Tower of Babel, but in a greater sense here, you you have the question, how are we going to reach the whole world? Mm -hmm. Well, God just right up front says, don't worry about translators. Don't worry about anything. My spirit is able to overcome any of these barriers. So I really think that the tongues in chapter 2, the languages, is very intentional. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, definitely think so. I think it's it's significant not just in the act itself. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's Pentecost. There's people from all over the world. Peter speaks. There's interpretation in tongues. Thousands are added to the early church. Mm-hmm. Really famous passages in chapter two where they're you, they're describing the Jerusalem community becomes a mega church overnight. You get several thousand people and they're sharing and they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. It's a very idyllic presentation of the community in Jerusalem. 
But the underlying, uh, the animating factor is exactly what Jesus said it would be. When he leaves, he says, wait for my spirit in Jerusalem. And just as it says in 1.8, and just as we're going to see throughout the whole book, Acts is, is commonly called the Acts of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. But it could just as easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Because the Holy Spirit is the factor in the spread of the church. It is the source for what happens in the book of Acts, is the Spirit guides the disciples. And it reminds you of the passage in John where Jesus is saying, I have to go away, but I'm going to send the Spirit. And the disciples are like, what? And he says, actually, it's good that I go away. Because until I go away, I cannot send my spirit. Mm -hmm. And you're left in that passage wondering, what could possibly be better than Jesus being there? Right. And you realize in the book of Acts that the way that God has designed this is, instead of having Jesus there for all the ministry, he's going to send his spirit to fill the disciples. And at Pentecost, it rushes onto them. And the Spirit is going to guide them to do what God has called them to do, spread the gospel across the entire world. So Peter gets up and gives this amazing sermon. And we're going to see a lot of that. One of the unique features of the book of Acts is the speeches. Mm -hmm. We get a ton of speeches. Depending on how you count them, 24 maybe total, 10 major speeches. A third of the book is speeches. And uh, you're going to get these great sermons from Peter. You're going to get an awesome sermon from Stephen in chapter 7. And you're going to get a lot of sermons from Paul after that. Mm -hmm. As the church begins to spread, like we said, you get a real idyllic sense of the church in Jerusalem uh, in in chapter 2 and then later in chapter 4. But things don't actually go that well for the church or for the apostles uh, once you get past that first sermon in in chapter two, right? It, it persecution, you know, kicks in, which is normal because the gospel is a dividing message. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus bringing a sword. You know, father against son, etc. You know, there's an acknowledgement in Jesus' ministry that there is a dividing happening mm-hmm. between truth and error, between righteousness and unrighteousness, and between sin and and salvation. And so as this is preached, the very beginning talks in very encouraging terms about how God is drawing people to himself. Actually, you see, I love that first sermon. I love that Peter gives the first sermon because when Jesus first said to Peter, from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. I didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that you look at Peter, you go, no, sorry, I'm, I'm not seeing that. And here we are in Acts chapter two, the spirit-infused Peter has become a fisher of men. Mm -hmm. So I love the way it starts and the the community, but then pretty quickly you realize, and I'm glad it doesn't just give this idyllic picture that, and they all lived happily ever after. Right. It's like, and the gospel did what it was supposed to do, and Mm -hmm. it divided. And Mm -hmm. so there are those who are hostile to the gospel. And so you 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 begin to see persecution uh, happen. Uh, The death of Stephen, the uh, death of James. Mm -hmm. And you see even those things, though, being used to God's purpose, because frankly, that's probably what propels them out of Jerusalem. Right. I think it's a factor that God uses to spread the gospel. One of the great commentaries on this written by I. Howard Marshall, and there's a phrase in that commentary that's always stuck out to me as a theme of Acts. He says... The triumph of God's word 
and the suffering of his messengers goes hand in hand in the book of Acts. And that really is true. It's you, you see this little refrain that starts to take place through the book of Acts, and it, and it basically is something along the lines of, they were suffering, and they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right. And as they suffered, the church grew. The church multiplied. So suffering and the triumph of the Word of God go hand in hand. And maybe we'll come back around to this at the end, but if we were to pause and, and just point out one thing about what we learn from the book of Acts, it is that it's nice to think that we want to recreate the early church. This is a huge trend, in, mm-hmm. in, in especially in American Christian churches, is how do we get back to the way the church should be? Right. And I think that's a good desire. I think it kind of depends on what you mean by the early church, because right. most people are referring to the Jerusalem church. The other churches, as we're going to see in a minute, are a total mess. I mean, the mm-hmm. church in Corinth, in Galatia, they're just a total disaster, Right. which a lot of churches have already fulfilled getting back to that kind of church. They're, uh-huh. they're uh, full of sinful people. They have leaders that sometimes don't make the best decisions. But when it comes to the Jerusalem church, one of the things that is so undeniable about the church in Jerusalem is if you wanted to be a leader in the church of Jerusalem, you were going to have to suffer. Right. Peter and John, first thing that we see happen to them in the church, they're arrested. They're beaten. They're freed by an angel. And instead of the angel saying, you know what, guys, let's just get out of here. He says, continue preaching. Right. And so they continue preaching. They continue getting arrested. As you mentioned, there's some early martyrs. So Stephen, for example, by the time you get to chapter 7, they've had some problems, some logistical problems in the church. Get this. People in the church are complaining. In the church of Jerusalem, <laughs> they're complaining about not that favoritism is happening and the program that they wanted is not being supported the way they want it. And the pastors aren't doing what they want them to do. Well, we this, are the early church. This sounds astounding. <laughs> but they decide, okay, we got to set up another system. So in chapter 6, they decide to increase the infrastructure a little bit. They create what we know today as deacons. Mm-hmm. And the deacons are supposed to take care of the widows. They're supposed to wait tables is what where the word deacon comes from. They're uh-huh. servants. So that the apostles, who are doing pastoral ministries, we think about it maybe, can devote themselves to prayer and teaching the Word of God. Well, one of the deacons is Stephen. And he finds himself in a really terrible spot. He gives this fireball of a sermon, and then he is killed. He's stoned to death. And what's really interesting about this story, beyond just the amazing sermon he gives, I mean, if you want to understand the Old Testament, right? go read Stephen's. Chapter 7 is perfectly laying out the meaning of the Old Testament. It's amazing. And I think one of the really cool parts of it is at the end, in, in chapter 7, verse 54, the people get enraged, they grind their teeth at him, and he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven and saw the glory of God. And there's Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that strengthens Stephen to fulfill the mission. It's almost as if he was reminded that Jesus, too, was reviled. He was put to death for mm-hmm. preaching the truth. I think uh, I've heard this preached in several different ways. And I think one of the things that is so powerful about this passage is Jesus is standing at the right hand of God 
and Stephen looks up and he's encouraged by seeing him, not because of not just because of his example, uh-huh. but because of the reward for faithfulness right. that Christ forgave his uh, people that killed him. And I think Stephen has that exact same response as he's being put to death. Now, at the end of chapter 7, we get a major piece of information in the development of the plot. You get, in verse 58, they bring him out of the city, they stone him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is a major foreshadowing of what's to come. It is indeed. Uh, Saul enters the picture as a persecutor of the church, and that will he will continue with that path. But the interesting thing, if I can change track for a second, listen to 8.1 and 8.4. And there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Acts chapter 1, verse 8 said. And then look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And to me, I, when I think about that, I think about the church is unquenchable. Mm-hmm. The spirit cannot be quenched. It's as though they thought, fine, we will intimidate these people by killing Stephen. Mm-hmm. And then James, and you know, we will suppress the church, we can destroy the church, and it's as though the more you do, the broader it spreads. It's almost as if God said, Thank you for killing Stephen, that's exactly what I needed to further my plans. I'm being facetious, but you get my point is the opponents play into God's hands. And I think that's still true today. Mm-hmm. And as dis- disillusioning as that was to the Christians then, they ended up somewhere else and thought, well, what will I do now? Am I intimidated? And the answer was, well, no, I know whom I've believed, as Paul said, mm-hmm. and I'm going to keep preaching. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know that this was a terrible and sad event. Mm-hmm. James dying, Stephen dying. We see a lot of difficult things happen. And we don't want to downplay any of the actual difficulty right. of these events. These were real people. They didn't know how the story was going to end. Right. They were suffering. They were being oppressed. Their leaders were being killed. And yet, in hindsight, we realize that nothing can thwart the plan of God. Even if things take a, an unsuspected turn, things look really bad. As you pointed out, God uses every single one of these things to further the mission. So the death of Stephen gives rise to the spread of the Christians They begin preaching everywhere. It also gives rise to the ministry of Paul, Mm -hmm. who's going to become the main character of this book as the gospel works its way out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In chapter 8, we get a really interesting story about Philip. Mm -hmm. He meets an Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, there's a lot of different stuff about why the Ethiopian eunuch is significant, and there's some fulfillment here of uh, some Old Testament Right. prophecies, but there's also kind of a coming back around of the time of Solomon and uh, spreading his wisdom and riches throughout the world. But the part I really like about this is after after um, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and there's a missing verse here too. I don't know if we want to spend any time talking about that, but 
there's a manuscript difference. But after, after he baptizes him, it says in chapter 8, verse 39, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to the towns. This is one of a few examples in the Bible of teleportation. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go past this chapter without making that point. Uh, things were so crazy in the book of Acts that people were teleporting. Yes. And uh, he just all of a sudden ends up in a different city. Right. We see that a couple of times in the New Testament. And it's kind of amazing because you're tempted. People listening to this are probably saying, well, I've read that and I just read right past like, oh, yeah, okay, miracle happened there. And mm-hmm. if you stop and think of it, you go, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What just happened here? Yeah. It's unbelievable. <clears throat> so we get to chapter 9. We get the conversion of Saul, which is one of the most significant events in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Not just in the Bible, but in the world. If you think about it, even the billions of people now and through history who are Christians, God would have accomplished it, you know, we think in any number of ways, but he chose to accomplish it this way. Right. By taking a, an enemy of the faith who was persecuting Christians, knocking him off of his horse, blinding him, and saying, you're going to serve me. You're going to be my chosen instrument to go before kings and rulers to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is really, I think, the key theme of the book of Acts in terms of movement. Mm-hmm. And that is that you, somehow you have to go from predominantly Jews being Christians to the whole world becoming Christians. Right. How does that happen? You know, that's it, there's some irony in this. I mean, double irony with Paul. I've always said Paul is educated in the scriptures. He's educated in Greek. He speaks several languages. He's one of the most intelligent guys around. He's a Jew's Jew. And God looks at him and says, that's the perfect guy. The only problem with him is he's persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. And how ironic that he becomes God's emissary. The second thing that's ironic to me is, and you're right, this is kind of a hinge in the book. We're going to go from having been scattered throughout Jerusalem and Samaria, now we're going to go to the whole world, is you take the Jew's Jew and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have said, well, why don't we go convert Apollos? Right. Why don't we just get Luke? Or why don't we get somebody who's got credentials Right. You know, street cred over there. Instead, he goes, no, I'm going to take the Jews Jew and I'm going to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I just think there's some irony here and you kind of get the sense of how God chooses to do things. It's pretty amazing. He's the perfect guy in hindsight. Yes. But he, you know, the people in Jerusalem, when he comes to Jerusalem, they can't believe it. Right. This guy's hauled off some of their relatives and put him in prison. <laughs> exactly. This is not the guy. Yeah, Barnabas uh, has to vouch for him. Right. Barnabas has to bring him before the apostles and say, you know, you can't believe it, but this guy actually did convert. And uh, the apostles are a little bit hesitant to believe, and and he causes problems everywhere he goes. Right. From the very beginning of the time that we see Paul, he's causing problems, starting riots and all of that. And uh, I I heard a preacher talking about this text one time, and he was imagining what was it like when Paul and the disciples were talking about their strategy in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-huh. And if you think about the way the book of Acts unfolds, Peter does do a little bit in chapter 10. Right. Uh, He has the dream of the sheet coming down. Uh Uh-huh. You got to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Everything is clean. So Peter does a little bit. Now, when you read Galatians, you find out that 
even that, kind of went back on that a little bit. Right. Didn't get it exactly right. But Paul's really the guy that takes the gospel out. John Mark goes with him from Jerusalem, but he has his home base in Jerusalem at the beginning. Right. Then he bases out of Antioch, which we'll see in the following chapters. Mm-hmm. But you have to imagine, how did this meeting go? So Paul is there with the disciples, and they're like, okay, how are we going to attack this? Paul goes up to the map on the wall. Of course, they got a map of the world up on the wall. And he circles Jerusalem. He says, okay, you guys handle everything in this circle, and I'll take everything else. <laughs> because that's about right. That's pretty much what happens in this book, is the, the disciples stay in Jerusalem, and uh-huh. they, they um, are growing their Jerusalem church. And there is reason to believe that they're sending missionaries later. Uh, right. Basically, oh, sure. Paul says, okay, it's, you know, it's now or never. So he decides to go out and starts planting churches. He ends up in the city of Antioch because of a very heroic and instrumental act by Barnabas. And, you know, Barnabas is an interesting character to me. Uh, I have great admiration for him. He is selfless. He has got a kingdom attitude. Uh, he, is a, he is more prominent than Paul. He vouches for Paul. So he goes to get, you know, Paul, brings him back to Antioch, and they're all teachers together. And Paul's the kind of junior guy. He takes him uh, to vouch for him to the apostles. You know, he's got the credibility Barnabas does and then pretty quickly he's eclipsed by Paul mm-hmm. and you don't ever see any sign that that's a problem you know it's sort of like John the Baptist he must increase and I must decrease I think we don't give Barnabas enough credit and then to be fair at the end when they have an argument Paul just says well fine you do what you want but I'm going my own way and then according to church tradition Barnabas does and he dies sick gets sick and dies on, uh, on Cyprus. And so you have to wonder uh, at his faithfulness, even though he wasn't really repaid mm-hmm. the way you and I would think this story should have ended. Yeah. He is a real example of faithfulness regardless of circumstances to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it, the more study you can do, there's not that much material, but the more study you can do on Barnabas, the more you'll get out of it. He believes in Paul when nobody believes in him. He believes in John Mark when nobody believes That's right. in him. He's got a great role to play in this book. And one of the things I really love is it's at the beginning of chapter 13 and the end of chapter 12, the church in Antioch is just absolutely blowing up. And you see in 1224, this refrain that we've mentioned a couple of times now, Mm -hmm. the word of God increased and multiplied. And uh, Barnabas, what happens is the church is getting so big that Barnabas realizes they can't they they can't actually handle what's going on. So he thinks to himself, what should I do? And he remembers Saul. Mm-hmm. So Saul, we think, has gone back. This is kind of a, a interesting open question in the Bible. We don't really know what Paul was doing during right. this time. It's likely that he was planting churches near his home, up in Tarsus, up kind of near modern-day Turkey. Uh-huh. But we really don't know. Right. So we know he was schooled by the Spirit for a while in the mm-hmm. wilderness, um, but all we know from the book of Acts, at least, is that Barnabas goes and looks for Saul. Mm-hmm. So he brings him back, and uh, they start to teach. And then there's an amazing moment in chapter 13 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. This, these are the prophets and the teachers mm-hmm. in Antioch. The Lord speaks. Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Mm -hmm. This is really amazing to think about if you put it into a modern context. Again, these are real people. They don't know how this is going to turn out. What they know is there are two pastors. They have six pastors, and two of them now are set aside, and they're sending them somewhere else. I mean, can you imagine having a pastor like Barnabas and a teacher like Paul in your church, and all of a sudden... They say, you know what? God spoke to us, and we are actually going to be full-time missionaries now, and right. we want you to pay for it. Right. I mean, come on. How well would that go over in a modern church? Yeah, hey, what's going to happen to the church at Antioch? Right. You know, how, how are we going to do? And there was no mention of that. It's like they just laid. And I love the terseness that after fasting and praying, laid their hands on them and sent them off. They were obedient to the Spirit, regardless mm-hmm. of what other thoughts they had in their mind. Yeah. So they sent them out, and uh, the church at Antioch actually does fine. They are the missionary hub of the early church for a long time. And the rest of the book, basically, we've, we're, we're to the halfway point now. The rest right. of the book is comprised of Paul and Barnabas for part of the time and their journeys. So they go, and, and they just take off heading west. They go to Cyprus first. They get into an, an altercation with a magician, which is really interesting. Uh-huh. And you get this great line in chapter 13, verse 10. Uh, and, and what makes this so significant, it sticks out to you when you read the text, no matter what. But it, right. it's kind of funny. There's a story about P.T. Barnum, the original uh, P.T. Barnum, uh, and uh, Charles Spurgeon who is a British preacher, and they're living at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you probably know Barnum from uh, The Greatest Showman. And this story is going to shed a little bit different light on that. Great entrepreneur. Editorializing. But basically, Barnum has built this big circus, and he wants to fill the tent. He wants people to come. And the most popular attraction in the world at that point was Spurgeon's preaching. Mm -hmm. And so he writes a letter to Charles Spurgeon and says, Hey... Why don't you come and do revivals in my tent, and people will come, and you'll get to preach to a lot of people. I'll make a lot of money. People will come to the circus. It'll be a win-win for both of us. And Spurgeon writes back, and in one sense, he says, Mr. Barnum, you can find my reply in Acts chapter 13, verse 10, signed Charles Spurgeon. Well, Acts chapter 13 says, You son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, in the original context, it's it's um, a rebuke to to uh, the, the magician, magician. Basically, says, "I will pay you if you give me this Holy Spirit ability to do these things because I can make a ton of money." Right. And so Spurgeon then. Repurposes that rebuke for Barnum, who's doing a similar thing. It's doing a very similar thing. And, you know, that story is just such a great testament to Spurgeon's character, but uh-huh. also to the fact that he understood what this passage is teaching. The spread of the gospel is by miraculous means. It's through ordinary actions, but it's through the miraculous means of the Spirit, taking the Word of God and fulfilling it, regenerating people. I mean, you see amazing conversion stories in the book of Acts. 
and never once do people get credit for it. It's right. always the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are eight conversion narratives in the book of Acts. And in every single one, it talks about that the Spirit opened this person's heart, or right. the Spirit did this, or, uh, you know, they preached in, in a circumstance you're like, that's not going to work. And somebody who's never heard of Christ before, all of a sudden they're converted, baptized, baptized the whole family. They become the outpost of the gospel in that town. And as Paul and Barnabas go on their journeys, you see this kind of thing happen over and over again. Paul comes in, they go to the synagogue, the Jews throw them out, so they go find somebody or some place to speak. Mm-hmm. It usually starts a riot. Um, in fact, there's a great phrase later on where they, and there's geopolitical things at work here too, because right. later when they get to uh, the city of Ephesus, they preach and a riot starts. And the reason the riot starts is because their preaching was causing people to stop buying idols. Right. So the Silversmiths Guild, who is out of money at this point, are pretty upset about what Paul's doing. He's ruining their business. So they incite a riot, and they want to basically kick Paul out of town so that they can continue selling idols. So you get somebody jumping in to mediate the dispute. They beat Paul. I mean, so many chaotic things happening in these cities. And there's a great line in there. When they're accusing Paul, they say, this is the guy who is turning the world upside down. Yes. And that's exactly what happens in the next 10 chapters of Acts. They go, they travel, they revisit their churches, they go to some of the biggest cities in the known world at that point, and they preach the gospel, and the world gets turned upside down. You know, that's really true, and they think that's because of Paul, and they think if they can kill him, they can stop it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the story of Acts is also the story of people trying to kill Paul yeah. and trying to shut him up. But you're right. Uh, one of the great themes of this book is this is all about the Spirit of God mm-hmm. and faithful individuals being obedient. To the Spirit of God. You know, one of the fun things, talking about Spurgeon, I'll bring this up to N.T. Wright, but uh, he said something once that really captured this pattern. There is a pattern. Mm-hmm. Paul goes in, goes to the Jews first, synagogue, preaches, people believe and become Christians. The ones that don't, angry and stir up resentment, he goes to the Gentiles, and then typically they end up stirring up resentment and he has to leave town, but he leaves church behind him when he goes, and that's his pattern. I remember one time when you and I were listening to N.T. Wright, and uh, he was giving some private remarks before a a lecture, and he said, you know, I find myself in an awkward position as I read. He's a Paul scholar, obviously. And so he said, as I read about the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, a riot started. Everywhere I go, we just have tea. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, what a great way to put it in perspective. You know, there's a sense in which the gospel is supposed to turn the world upside down. It is. And that, yeah, that was, I always laugh when I think about that. Because that is the pattern for Paul. He's a disruptor. He, he uh-huh. um, everywhere he goes, bad things happen from a worldly standpoint. And good things happen from a gospel standpoint. Right. So we're getting to the point where the, the journeys and things comprise the text from about chapter 13 through chapter 20. Mm-hmm. And what happens in chapter 20 is you get a a change that then sets the course for the rest of the book. So this is, we're entering, we're going from part two to part three of the book of Acts. And Paul, in in the beginning of 21, he goes to Jerusalem and he's arrested. 
He goes to trial. In the middle of a riot. In the middle of a riot <laughs> on the same trumped-up charges that uh-huh. have happened everywhere. And he appeals to Caesar. Why would he do that? And what does that mean? You know, those are two different questions. And I'll answer the second one first. What does it mean? One of the reasons Paul was chosen is, and the fact his name is Paul, is a Roman name. His, Greek, his Hebrew name was Saul. Uh, but Paul is a Roman citizen. Well, that carries, in that time, really unique uh, privileges to it. So in choosing Paul, that's just one of the added benefits. So what does it mean? What it meant was is that he had this status that he could appeal to Caesar. He could be sent to Rome. He could preach the gospel there, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. So what does it mean? It seems to me... That when Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, you will be carted in front of kings and rulers, and don't worry what you're going to say, the Spirit will tell you. This is what that means, is to me, is like, okay, we've done Jerusalem, we've done Samaria, we've done throughout a lot of the Gentile world. We're going to the headquarters of the entire secular world. We're going to the most powerful place, the most powerful man in the world. And mm-hmm. think about it, this is within a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what it means in some sense. Why does he do it? You know, Cole, I have wondered if he could see that far or more likely. Remember, these people don't know how this is turning out. He gets in a jam mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, these Jews may kill me and stop this. But you know what? I am a Roman citizen. And if I do that, then I can thwart their plans. I wonder if he did it because he was simply trying to thwart the, the plans to kill him at the moment, but God's greater purpose was to get him in front of yeah. uh, Caesar. You know, yeah. you remember later they're going to say, uh, Festus and Agrippa, after he talks to them, are going to say, you know, if this man hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality of that was he would not have been alive at that time because the Jews had taken a vow, you know, that we're going to kill him no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so the only thing that really saved him was appealing to Caesar. So right. I wonder if he did it for human reasons and God used it for, for cosmic good. I think that's exactly right. I think that's the way most things happen in God's plan. I think that's the way most things happen in the book of Acts. It is significant that Paul invokes that. And like you said, that's exactly right. The fact that he was a Roman citizen was one of the most significant things about him. Right. Of course, it's significant that he that he is a Jew, that he has pharisaical training. He's obviously a brilliant intellect. He right. obviously is you know a high level physical specimen for being able to endure all the things that happened to him. You know that is true, by the way. And you know the descriptions of him from later church history don't make him look like the Rock. <laughs> you know this is not Hercules. This is a scrawny little, little bow legged guy. But yeah. boy, there's something burning inside that guy that you yeah. could take a beating and keep on. I'm trying to remember who it was that said this. It might have been uh, is it Ramsey who writes Paul the Traveler? Yeah, and he says maybe the most significant thing about Paul is his endurance. Yeah, if you think about it, his physical endurance is amazing. He recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 all the things that have happened to him. Yeah. And yeah. it is just the most unbelievable. And he leaves out all the little stuff yeah. that for you and me would be, whoa. It would be terrible. It would be the worst day of our life. Right. Uh, and yet he's shipwrecked three times. He's beaten with rods. He gets the 40 lashes three times. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, 
just an amazing amount of stuff. He's stoned and left for dead in in uh, chapter 16 and 17. And then he just picks up and goes to the next town and preaches. His physical endurance is amazing. I think that Paul is trying to preserve the ministry by appealing to Rome. I think he thinks that things are getting That's a so... Good point. I don't think Paul was afraid to die. Right. I think, as he says in Philippians, which you just covered this, mm-hmm. he says... Okay, to live as Christ, to die is gain. But because I'm convinced that there is more fruitful labor for me if I stay, then I'm going to press on. I think that's probably what happens here. Things are getting out of hand. It looks like he's going to be put to death. He doesn't have to be put to death. Right. So he, I don't think that you know appealing to Caesar was his first resort. I right. think it was his last resort. Right. And he thought, well, if I can continue to preach in Rome, and if I can continue to talk through these different trials, that gives me an opportunity to share the gospel. And uh, as you see in the book of Romans, he wanted to go there for a long time. And we don't know exactly where in this story that letter is written, but right. somewhere in the mix of this, he's desiring to go to Rome. And the funny thing about Romans is it's not just so he can build there because there's already a church there. Right. It's so that he can get the church in Rome to finance a mission all the way out to, to the s- west to so Spain. he can go to Spain, Yeah, which was the end of the known world at that point. And a lot of people think that he actually went there. Right. He actually made it to Spain. Um, but... You know, I don't think this was a matter of he was afraid of being beaten. He was afraid of being put to death. I think it was actually him trying to preserve the mission. And that's what happens in these next few chapters is right. he gets to go in front of the most powerful people in the world because he appealed to Caesar. Because he's going up through the court system at this point. He's getting passed along. Right. He is able to talk to some of the most powerful men in the world. Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy if you think about it. Who would ever say, "Okay, we got a strategy session." Back to our strategy session. Mm-hmm. We need to get to Rome. We need to get up the ladder here. We need to get this message into the higher echelons. How will we do it? Oh, I know. I'll have them arrest me and take me there for trial, and that way I'll get to speak to everybody in power. Yeah. Who who comes up with that? Right. But, you know, just a side note on Paul, I can't go past here without thinking about Paul's character, is if, if you think about it, he is probably arrested, let go, arrested again. And the second time he knows he's going to die. And Second Timothy has this great passage. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. In other mm-hmm. words, we're done. And you know what I think of, and he doesn't say it sadly, he just says, I've played it out. Let me use an analogy. Paul's got a few cards in his hand, and he plays the cards as best he can to further the kingdom. And one of the cards was Roman citizen. Oh, well, that got you to Rome, and that got you speaking in front of Caesar. And the time comes when he's out of cards, mm-hmm. and he goes, well, it doesn't look like there's any way to prolong this, so I've finished the race. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, a crown of righteousness awaits for me. Mm-hmm. And I think about that myself particularly when you're in my stage of life, and I'll speak to anybody you know, in, in the later stages of their life, maybe looking at retirement from their jobs, etc., is don't stop running the race until you've played all the hand that God mm-hmm. has dealt you. And what a great message. And I think that is true about Paul. I think that's exactly what he did. So he gives various defenses. Uh, this is the part of the sermon series where you just do all of them in one deal. He gives a bunch of, he gives a bunch of defenses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Felix and then Festus and King Agrippa. And it's it, it really is worth spending some time on this mm-hmm. because he gives a little bit different speech 
in different places here. And he brings out a few different things about his story in each of these places. And that in and of itself is worth studying. But we get to the end. He goes to Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's shipwrecked on the way there, of course. Uh, couldn't, couldn't be easy. Course, He's bit yeah. by a snake on the way there. But he gets to Rome, and he is under house arrest. He's receiving visitors. He's preaching the gospel. And the book ends with a great statement here. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I want to come back and talk about that final line because I think there's some good application there, and I think that really wraps up the message of Acts. But now that we've gone over the outline of it, I want to cover a couple of the difficulties in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Acts is overall a pretty easy read Mm -hmm. in terms of the New Testament. Certainly, if you're on a Bible reading plan and you've gotten to the book of Acts, the easy stuff is pretty much over at this point. You're about to dive into the more difficult parts of the New Testament. Right. So you're going to hit Romans right after this. Right. And all the way, it's going to be tough, you know, in terms of all the way to Revelation. Mm-hmm. But the narrative sections are pretty easy to read and understand. Right. But there are some difficult things about the book of Acts. And one of them would be Acts is very unique in that there is teaching and there is content that's meant to be applied in it, just like the Gospels. And then there's also just descriptions of stuff that happens. And the way that we'd frame this up is, what in Acts is descriptive, just telling you what happened? And what is prescriptive, telling you what should happen? Right. So, for example, going back to our story about the magician Elamus, mm-hmm. is that descriptive? This just happened to Paul. Right. Or is it prescriptive? Every time you meet a magician, you must rebuke them in the name of the Lord. Right. Right? That, yes. That's the way Spurgeon read it. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's a crazy example. But so much of what we do in the church today is based on making a judgment call over whether some passage in Acts is prescriptive and we should do it exactly like they did it, or it's descriptive. This is just what they did. And it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. No, it really is. And those can be honest differences of opinion at times and other times more dangerous. But, for example, I became a Christian, uh, you know, around uh, late, late teens in the Church of Christ, the Little Church of Christ in Kentucky. And I think I've mentioned that before. But one of the things that the Church of Christ does is they want to model the first century church. And a, a number of the things Church of Christ does is commendable. And I'm not speaking about the whole Church of Christ, my experience in a small Church of Christ. And I thought that was admirable. And so, for example, their church governance is non-existent. They are congregational governance. By that, each congregation is trying to model itself after Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, etc., and be that way. But none of them has any centralized authority over the others because the early church at its earliest didn't have that. So, for example, that is a way that you might do it. Now, I would argue that's probably descriptive. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's just the way the church grew up. There isn't necessarily anything wrong. If Antioch had banded together with the church in Jerusalem and formed the Southern Baptist Missionary Organization, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? I don't see a problem. I think that's descriptive. They read it as prescriptive. So I, I think you're right. That is a, a crux of the book of Acts, and sometimes it's 
You can get wrapped around the axle trying to decide. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it can become serious. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that example, Congregationalist Church Governance is a great example of where Christians can disagree on judgment calls in the book of Acts. One of the more troubling ways that people have interpreted this is in some, not all, in some charismatic churches. Right. They take passages where people are, well, what they would say, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. When you become a Christian, you must speak in tongues. You must be. You must have a second baptism by the Holy Spirit. That happens in the book of Acts. Right. It doesn't always happen in the book of Acts. It, the outpouring of the Spirit happens five times in the book of Acts, which is not as many times as there are conversions. It's not as many times as people hear the gospel for the right. first time, but it does happen in Acts. And so there's really a few different ways to read that. And if you read it as prescriptive, like this is what's supposed to happen when hands mm-hmm. are laid on you, yeah. you'll, you'll you might, go a different direction. You might arrive at the, uh, the thinking, if you really are a Christian, you must speak in tongues. Right. Well, that's actually not true in the rest of Scripture. Right. But if you take some of those examples, what I would say are probably descriptive passages, and you say, nope, this is how it has to happen every time, then that would lead you to believe, okay, this is what happens when people convert. And there's various ways. I'll say that's kind of an extreme version in some churches that'll say, hey, it happened that way, so it's got to happen that way every time. But this is the kind of decision you have to make when you're reading the book of Acts is to right. say, what are we supposed to take from this? How do we apply this? And that prescriptive-descriptive divide can be tricky. You know, one of the ways that I see it is prescriptive, but maybe not in the way we think, is when you look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, and you see them having uh, taking care of each other financially when needed. You see them gathering together, breaking bread. You see fellowship mm-hmm. in, in daily life, not just on Sundays. You know, and, and you see them studying the teaching. You see them in prayer. You see a picture of community. That, to me, is prescriptive mm-hmm. in that whatever community looks like in the 21st century, that's what the church should look like. Are we as a church or as a Sunday school class or a small group, are we doing those things for each other? Are we intimate with each other? Are we holding each other accountable? Now, whether or not we meet in the temple courts, and if we do it every day like the early church did or whatever, those are describing what they did. But at the core of that is something that is prescriptive, Mm -hmm. and that is this is what Christian community looks like. Right. Yeah, there are lots of opportunities to make that call. And I think that's one of them that's pretty clear. This is what Christians should be doing. Right. I think some of Paul's methods are descriptive and not prescriptive. Mm-hmm. But I think his passion for evangelism, his desire to preach, his desire to do whatever God calls him to do, clearly prescriptive. So the other thing I would point out is the timeline of Paul's life. This is a little bit bigger right. in, in more scholarly conversations than just in reading. But you'll notice... When you read the book of Acts, and then when you go read letters like Galatians, for example, it's difficult to tell what the timeline is in Paul's life. How many times did he visit Jerusalem? Did the scenes from Galatians 1 happen when he went to the Jerusalem Council? Did they happen before that? It's not clear when everything happens in Paul's life in the book of Acts. Part of that is because Luke is not with him the entire time. Right. And he doesn't tell a continuous Paul story. Part of it is, it doesn't matter. Right. It really doesn't matter. There, We have the events that God wants us to know. 
we don't believe that Acts or the first chapter of Galatians or wherever else is an exhaustive account of Paul's life. It could have all happened. Right. And there are some things that are tricky to work out with that, but it's it's important to not get too wrapped around the axle on that. Right. Uh, the other thing in, in Paul that's difficult is you don't see him writing any letters in the book of Acts. You see him giving sermons. And the content of the sermons are primarily to non-believers. Right. Whereas the letters are primarily to believers. That's a very good point because sometimes we forget that. And you see in in First uh, and Second Corinthians that the Corinthians actually criticize Paul because his presence isn't what they want it to be. So they're used to these amazing orators like Apollos who come right. in. Paul, I think kind of tongue-in-cheek, calls them super apostles. Uh-huh. And they are great speakers. They're, right. they're classically trained. Paul probably did have some classical training, but they're classically trained. They are smooth speakers, great delivery. And Paul talks about how they criticize him for having a kind of a meek presence. And then he writes these bombastic letters. Uh-huh. And you see him in Acts. He's very bold. Uh, but there's just an indication that, you know, these are different contexts. He doesn't write the same way as he speaks. He doesn't speak to Gentiles the same way as Jews. He doesn't preach the same to non-believers as he does write to believers. These are things that are easily worked out, I think, with some study. And uh, scholars obviously debate over these things. But that's something to keep an eye on is, yeah, you might read Acts. You might read the letters and say, how does that fit together? And that's a great question to ask. It is. And it's obviously the fact that we don't know that. Honestly, I would love to see volume three. And that was Luke. Everything I left out of the book of Acts. You know, I forgot to tell you that when uh, we were in this city, we had to stay there for three days because Paul's back went out because at the time he was stoned, he had a burst disc. And, you know, while we were there, he went ahead and wrote to Ephesus and to Colossae Mm -hmm. and so forth. And by the way, Timothy showed up and he sent him off here. There's so many things that could be said. I would want to take the point of view of that tells me that everything that is in there is in there for a reason. Definitely. Because so many other things could have been in there. Definitely true. Definitely true. Well, as we're getting to wrap up the book of Acts, what are some of your favorite scenes or favorite passages from Acts? Well, I'll give you three really quickly. First one is in chapter 3 with Peter and John. Very early. You talked about them being persecuted. This was their first persecution because they healed a crippled beggar. And I love this phrase. And the beggar uh, is begging for everybody going into the temple. And they stop and look at him. And so he turns to them like, oh, they're going to give me something. Mm-hmm. You know, if you make eye contact with the beggar, then they're like, oh, I'm getting a donation. Right. And he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the yeah. name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And I thought, wow, that, that has always stuck with me is you don't need money to do God's work. Mm-hmm. The second thing is when Paul is traveling, we don't realize what a big deal Paul is, I I think. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, there's a point where it talks about, it says Paul did many great miracles. God used Paul. Actually, what it says is God, through Paul, did many great miracles. And listen to this. Handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were then taken to the sick And when they touched them, they were healed. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, that's amazing. And then my third one is in Acts chapter 17, his speech in Athens to the intelligentsia and the Areopagus is 
brilliant. Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah, what are some are, of your those favorites? Those are great scenes. I, I love that speech in Athens. I just love that Paul's there. I mean, it is the epicenter of the intellectual world, the classical world, and there Paul is making an appeal for Christ. And he's scoffed at there. Right. I mean, that is not his most right. successful evangelistic sermon. But uh, he's faithful, and he presents the message to kings and rulers and powers. I've always really loved Acts chapter 20, where Paul calls the Ephesian elders and tells them, I know that I'm never going to see you guys again. I think that's about as close as you get to Paul giving a ministry manifesto. Right. That and the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you get Paul at an intimate and tender level. Mm-hmm. unlike any other place. And they weep together, and he says, I've preached the full counsel of God. He warns them that, that wolves are going to enter among the sheep, and then they send him off. And sure enough, they never see Last him Last time they're ever going to see him. Yeah. You know, that passage, Cole, uh, convicts me in, as a pastor. This is probably true for every Christian, but particularly for any pastor, when he said, I am innocent of the blood of all men, because I have declared to you the whole counsel of mm-hmm. God. And that hits me like a ton of bricks. It's like, I want to be innocent of the blood of all men. And to do that, uh, I need to declare the whole counsel of God. I, I don't want to let fear or anything else keep me from speaking the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. I, th- that just that story is powerful, but that particular verse has always hit me as a pastor. Mm-hmm. The other thing I really like about Acts that's a little bit more on a uh, a little smaller level is just the way that regular people go about doing the work of God. Yeah. So you see, and I, I can't. I should have looked this up. I can't remember the name of this book. There, there, it's like a pamphlet. It's it's a it's not very long, but there's a book that talks about the the methods that Paul used hmm. to build his ministry. And if you read carefully, and if you you have some people that know what's going on in ancient culture and how people did things, you start to see that Paul, you know, he's a tent maker, and he teams up with Aquila and Priscilla in a multi-city, multi-franchise tent making company. Right. And they have branches in Rome, they have branches in Ephesus, and they're working together, and Paul's using that to create these opportunities in his workshop to tell people about Christ. And then he uses the money from that to go rent the Hall of Tyrannus and to give classes later in the day. Yes. There's there's just some real gritty, practical things that you can discover in the book of Acts that Paul was doing and that his associates were doing to spread the gospel. And I think it's a good inspiration to people to say, whatever you have to use, use it. Right. Back to your metaphor earlier. Whatever cards you have, play them. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think the final scenes of Acts are really cool. Um, Paul finally reaches Rome. Probably it's some in some way or another testifies either before Nero or some of his associates. And uh, the end of the book of Acts, I think, is really cool. So to 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 bring it to a close, the end of the book of Acts is interesting. It ends with an adverb in the Greek. And some, some um, English translations preserve this. The ESV says, with boldness and without hindrance. 
without hindrance being an adverbial phrase. But in the Greek, it really just says unhinderedly. Huh. In an unhindered manner. Yeah. It's an adverb. Yeah. So the goal of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 8, was that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. That it would break free from Jerusalem, that it would go out, and sure enough, at the end, it is not just all over the earth. It is in the halls of the most powerful place in the world, mm-hmm. in the history of the world. Right. Rome, the Roman emperor, is going to hear or hear about right. the gospel. And Paul is there in the shadow of the Roman Empire, under house arrest, preaching without hindrance. That even Rome cannot hinder the gospel. That all the things that have happened to Paul cannot hinder the gospel. That the Holy Spirit did come and did give power and the word did spread so that the gospel was being preached unhinderedly in just the span of a couple of decades. You know, that's a good point, too, because you think about pastors who labor in uh, what we would call smaller churches, and then I really decry the whole fascination we have with the size of churches rather than the faithfulness of churches. But nevertheless, it's easy to get discouraged with that. Here's Paul under basically kind of house arrest, mm-hmm. uh, and God uses his house arrest, his quarantine, his shelter in place to mm-hmm. basically connect with people that he has a plan for. And I would want to encourage anybody who's laboring in the vineyard and you, you don't think it's a very big vineyard, it doesn't have to be a very big vineyard. This talks less about how many people he talked to and the fact he did it boldly and nothing was able to hinder him from doing it. Mm-hmm. And you know, every pastor can say that same today. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.